Good morning. It's great for us as a family to be uh, back again and to see you all again, or to see your eyeballs anyway. Uh, the only things I need to uh, mention just before we start, first of all, just to remind you of the one-way system. Uh, you're welcome, of course, to go to the back during the service if you need, but at the end we'll be leaving through this side door. And then again, a reminder that there's no Sunday school but there are worksheets to go along with the sermon, and those are at the table at the back. And then just finally to mention that the latest regulations allow us to make a little bit more use of our musicians, so we will be hearing from them today. And if you do find yourself joining in quietly with them, that's okay, but we just ask that the sound doesn't get above a congregational level. That's all I need to mention. Uh, very little by way of introduction, but we're here to worship God. So let's begin this time of worship with prayer. Let's pray together. Lord God, we are so glad to meet together in your name. When everything around us is uncertain, and it is uncertain even at the very best of times. When things around are unsteady and unsure, we're so glad that we can look to you, our faithful God. We're so glad that together we can say, it is good to be near God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. We're so thankful for what you've done to bring us near to you. We praise you for sending your son, your anointed one, your king, the one who gave his life so we could be near you. So we could meet this morning forgiven of our sin with that burden lifted from our shoulders and so that we can also be full of hope for the future. We worship you, and once again, afresh today, we put our trust in you. Will you bless us this morning by showing us just how worthy you are, worthy of all our hope and trust. Amen. We're going to join in a short reading together, and then the musicians are going to lead us uh, in a song as they play and sing that for us. So first, let's stand uh, to read together, and then we can be seated as the musicians play. We'll join in reading some words from Psalm 20 on the screen. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to His anointed. He answers Him from His heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of His right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the King. Answer us when we call. <laughs> 
Amen.
We're going to have a Bible reading now that reminds us God's ways are not our ways. Often his ways appear to be foolish and weak, but he always shows himself to be wise and strong. And the place we see that most clearly is in the cross of Jesus Christ. So we're going to read from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 31. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of God.
body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he Turn with me, please, to Judges chapter 4. Judges 4, and we'll read the whole of this chapter. Again... The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harosheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, 
the God of Israel commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the river Kishon and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly, I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now, Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kedesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinuam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Haguyim to the river Kishon all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagayim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes and asks you, is anyone in here, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Just then, Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. This is God's Word. It's been a few weeks since we looked at Judges, so let's just remember what we have seen so far in this book. 
And we're in the period now after Joshua has already led the Israelites into the land of Canaan. Under his leadership, they began the work of taking the land. And we've seen previously why they were taking the land. They were commissioned by God to bring God's judgment on the inhabitants of Canaan for the Canaanites' wickedness over many, many generations. And at the same time, the Israelites would be taking hold of the inheritance God had promised them. He had promised them this land. But what we find in the book of Judges, now that Joshua has gone, what we find is a people who have lost sight of their mission. We find them settling down among the Canaanites, intermarrying with them, and worshiping their gods, false gods. And so a cycle begins, a cycle that repeats over and over. The Israelites defy the Lord, the one true God, and they receive the just reward of that defiance. The Lord gives them into the hands of their enemies. Then eventually, the people cry out to the Lord because their enemies are oppressing them, and in His great mercy and compassion, the Lord raises up a deliverer, a savior. This book refers to those deliverers as judges. Each of the judges strike a blow which liberates the Israelites. But after a time, the people forget the Lord's salvation. They slide back into false worship, defying the Lord all over again. And the cycle starts over. And this morning we come to another turn of the wheel. Another cycle where the people show their faithlessness. And God shows his amazing mercy and compassion. And this time the story centers on 900 chariots and a lady with a tent peg. And as we have seen already in this book, as bizarre and as gory as some of the details are, according to the New Testament, these historical events have been written down for us because they are useful for us. They're useful as we seek to know and to follow this same God today in our situation. And this passage makes two simple points. It begins with a challenge to us in verses 1 to 9. Beware of misplaced confidence. Last time when we looked at chapter 3, a few weeks ago now, we heard about Ehud, the left-handed assassin. Ehud had freed Israel from the oppression of Eglon, the Moabite king. But here, verse 1 tells us, when Ehud died, the Israelites again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That evil involved turning from the Lord, ignoring his good commands, abandoning their mission to take Canaan, and instead taking on the ways and the false gods of Canaan. And in response to that evil, the Lord again handed Israel over to a Canaanite king. If they love the ways of Canaan so much, they may as well have a Canaanite to rule them. Verse 2 says, The Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, 
the commander of his army was based in Harasheth Hagayim because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. The places that are mentioned here are in the northern part of Israel. And that's where the action is going to take place in this passage. But notice the appearance here of those 900 chariots. They're going to be mentioned a lot in this passage. And the reason is, these chariots symbolize just how bleak Israel's situation is at this point. These chariots are iron-plated, and they represent the height of military technology at this point in time. Sisera commands Jabin's army, and he not only has the latest hardware, he has lots of it. A few years ago, the equivalent of this might be an army commander who has fleets of tanks at his disposal. Today, maybe it would be satellite systems and attack drones. And in contrast to that, the Israelites apparently have no access to the technology at all. They're hopelessly behind. And they are hopelessly unable to stand up to Sisera. Verse 3 says, he is cruelly oppressing Israel. And his equipment is so vastly superior to Israel's, there's nothing they can do about his cruel oppression. And so in that desperate situation, the Israelites cry to the Lord for help. Not so much a cry of repentance as a cry of desperation. They're not so much sorry for their sin, it seems, as they're distressed by the consequences of their sin. But again, despite the fickleness and the foolishness of these people, the Lord shows compassion. He raises up a deliverer. But before we meet that deliverer, we're introduced to a lady called Deborah, a very significant and a very impressive lady. Verse 4 tells us she's a prophet. That means she's God's spokesperson. She passes on God's word to the people. And in addition to that, verse 4 says Deborah was leading Israel at that time. Literally, she was judging Israel. Why is the NIV not translated it as judge here? I assume it's because Deborah is different from the other judges in this book. They are warriors. She's not, nor does she attempt to be. In fact, what Deborah does is more like what we think of when we hear the word judge today. She settles disagreements and she gives verdicts. Verse 5 describes her holding court. It tells us the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. It's significant that the text says the Israelites went up to her because we've just seen the action here is going to take place in just the northern part of Israel. And only the northern tribes are going to be involved in the fighting. But apparently people from all over Israel look to Deborah for leadership. And if we put this together then, the fact that Deborah is both a prophet and a leader of Israel, we realize she's very much like Moses who came before her. And she's very much like Samuel who came after her. 
Both Moses and Samuel brought God's word to the people and they gave leadership. People looked to them for direction and for decisions. Now, I'm open to being corrected on this if you can find any others, but as far as I can tell, those are the only three figures in the Old Testament who fulfill that double role. And what that means is, Deborah is a significant person. She's a powerful, inspirational person. The writer of Judges takes care to show us that. Deborah is the kind of person people admire and people trust. Clearly, she knows God, and she not only receives direct messages from God, she also has godly wisdom to deal with people's situations. And so people have confidence in her. They put their hope in her. And they travel to her from all over Israel. But Deborah is not going to be Israel's savior. Look what happens next in verse 6. She sent for Barak, son of Abinuam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go. Take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the river Kishon and give him into your hands. Who's going to be Israel's savior? The Lord himself. Yes, Barak is told to gather the troops and march, but it's very clear the Lord himself will do the saving. He will deliver Sisera on a plate for Barak, along with Sisera's troops and his 900 fancy chariots. The one Barak is to trust, and the one all Israel is to trust, is the Lord himself. He's the one there to have confidence in. But Barak has not yet learned that lesson. Look at verse 8. Barak said to her, that's to Deborah, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Why does Barak say this? Is it because he's a coward? I really don't think so. He's obviously already a military commander. The following verses show us that 10,000 troops are ready and willing to follow him at a moment's notice. Clearly, he has a reputation then as a leader in battle. And when the battle comes here in our passage, he shows no cowardice at all. He's right in the thick of things to the very end. Barak doesn't insist on Deborah going with him because Barak is a coward. That's not it. No, Barak has the wisdom to realize he cannot do this on his own. He knows even with 10,000 troops, the odds are heavily against him. Those 900 iron-plated chariots are formidable. They could tear into his troops and make mincemeat of them. Barak is not a coward, he is a realist. 
he can see that winning this battle will take more than swords and spears. And he's right about that. The problem is, he thinks the one he needs is Deborah. He looks to this inspirational, gifted leader to win the battle for him. He puts his confidence in Deborah's presence and ability, not the Lord's. Barak's motto seems to be, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but I trust in Deborah the prophet. And what Barak gets from Deborah is a rebuke in verse 9. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. In other words, fair enough, Barak, I will come. But because you put your confidence in me instead of the Lord himself, you will not be the one to clinch this victory. God is going to use someone else. This is a good point for us to pause and consider how the New Testament speaks about Barak. Because the New Testament identifies Barak as a man of faith. He appears alongside Gideon and Samson in Hebrews chapter 11. That chapter is the who's who of Old Testament people who lived by faith. But Barak's faith in the Lord clearly did not come fully formed. It had to be developed. And this incident was crucial to that. Barak's learning here, or he's going to learn, what it means to be a true man of faith. It doesn't just mean putting your faith in someone. It means putting your faith in the right someone. Deborah was a gift from God for Israel. She had plenty to offer. We've already seen that. And here, she still has an important role to play. She's going to spur Barak on with his mission. But Deborah is not going to win this battle for Barak. She was never supposed to be the object of his faith. Only God is worthy of that kind of confidence. And I think this is where this passage of Scripture touches us. It challenges us to beware of misplaced confidence. We're all familiar with the warnings throughout Scripture about trusting in idols. But this is a warning about trusting in one of God's good gifts. A person sent by God to bring blessing. That's what Deborah was. She was exemplary and she was admirable. But she was never meant to be the hope of Israel. Now, we have to be careful here and make sure we understand the point. Because when you and I begin to get to know the Bible a bit, and as we listen to sermons from the Bible, we very quickly realize the Bible does not command self-sufficiency. It doesn't encourage you and me to be lone rangers. The Bible often calls us sheep. And sheep are not capable of self-sufficiency. Sheep need a shepherd. 
And the Bible also insists that we cannot save ourselves. We need a savior. But the problem is we can very easily depend on other people to be our shepherd and to save us. When God gives us good friends, when he gives us good leaders, it is right for us to seek their help and to benefit from their gifts. That's why God raised up those people in our lives. But can you see, it's so easy for you and me to go further than that until we begin to lean on those people to the point where we depend on them. To the point where we just can't imagine getting through life without them. But the truth is, even the best of people cannot overcome Sisera and his 900 chariots. Or whatever the equivalent is in your life. Even the best of God's people can't bring us through the dark valleys in our lives. They can't bring us through the darkest valley of death. Just think of the horrible situation we've had in recent months in this country where men and women have been dying alone during this COVID crisis. In many cases, people died unable to see their closest loved ones, unable to see their pastor. Should it be that way? No. But it happened that way. And when a Christian has to face death alone, they had better be able to face it with their confidence in God himself. They'd better not be relying on somebody else's confidence in God to get them through. They'd better not face that dark valley with a second-hand confidence in God. And the only way you and I will be able to face great difficulties is if we learn now to put our confidence in God and only in God. Because never mind the challenge that comes at the point of death. If you and I live long enough as Christians, at some point another Christian we look up to is going to end up letting us down. Some of us may even have the horrible, horrible experience of seeing a Christian we look up to actually turning their back on Christ and walking away from the faith. If our confidence is tied to that person, then we are in trouble. Now, those are not reasons to hold back from Christian fellowship. We mustn't do that. But even as we commit ourselves to Christian relationships and as we learn to value them deeply, our ultimate confidence must always be in Christ, not in other Christians. And if you're not a Christian, if you've never made a personal commitment to Christ, don't put your hope in being around Christians. Or having Christian parents. Don't think you can get through Judgment Day on their coattails. Come to Christ yourself 
and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And those of us who profess to be Christians, let's examine our hearts and if necessary, reorganize our hearts so that we can truly sing in Christ alone, my hope is found. You and I have to press on in our faith so that those words become ever more true for us. So let's take the time to ask ourselves, has my confidence drifted from the Lord himself until it has begun to rest on somebody else? If it has, then that person will almost certainly be a wonderful person, a husband or wife, a dear friend, a parent or grandparent, a church leader. The more godly and exemplary a person is, the more we want to be with them, the more we want to learn from them, and so we should. But let's be careful we don't end up leaning on their faith in God and their knowledge of God instead of deepening our own relationship with God. Because the day will come when that other person isn't there to lean on. And unless our confidence is in God himself, we will be at a loss. That's the lesson Barak has to learn. Deborah is a great lady, but she is not going to fight and win this battle for him. She is not going to deal with Sisera and his 900 chariots. Only the Lord can do that. And in the rest of our passage, Barak is shown that the Lord is worthy of our confidence. In the next verses, we find the two armies gathering, Barak and his 10,000 men on foot versus Sisera with his 900 chariots plus who knows how many men on foot. But sandwiched in between those details, we find what seems to be a strange and maybe irrelevant interruption to the action. Look at verse 11. Now, just as these armies are getting ready to go, the writer breaks off and tells us, Now, Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. Who were the Kenites? Well, they were not Israelites, they had been associated with Israel through Moses' wife, Zipporah. But the important detail here is that sometime previous to this situation, Heber the Kenite had moved into the area where this battle is just about to take place. In a moment, we'll see why that is significant. But first, notice how the battle itself turns out to be a non-event. I don't mean it was a non-event for the, those who are fighting in it. Of course, it wasn't for them. But I mean, the battle is a non-event here in the text. Look how it's described, beginning of verse 14. Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. 
At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Haguyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. A key phrase is in verse 15. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots. And what was Deborah's role? In verse 14, she reminds Barak before the battle that the Lord was going to rout the enemy. 900 chariots, fleets of tanks, satellite systems and attack drones, all of those are no more trouble to the Lord than candles on a birthday cake. He can snuff them out in a moment. The one Barak needed was the Lord. And in the end, the greatest contribution Deborah made was helping Barak see who he really needed. That is the best contribution any Christian can make in the lives of others. Reminding them who their true shepherd and savior is reminding them who can truly lead them through the dark valleys of life. We do those other people a disservice if we lead them to believe we can do that for them. We can't. And God gives leaders to the church, not to gain followers for themselves, but to gain followers for Jesus Christ. He's the one who has gone ahead of his people. Through temptation, through spiritual warfare, through even death. Jesus, our Savior, has gone ahead of us. And he has conquered every enemy already. He's routed them. And he can give us the victory in all those situations. Here, the Lord gives Barak and his troops victory. And I said the way the battle is recorded here makes it a non-event. Now next week we'll learn the way the Lord went ahead of Barak was by using a storm. The storm caused the river Kishon to flood and it made those high-tech chariots just useless in the mud. The greatest asset of Caesar's army becomes a terrible liability in that situation. But here in chapter 4, the writer of Judges doesn't want us to get sidetracked by those details. He wants us to focus here on something else entirely. As Barak and his men are reaping the rewards of the Lord's victory, the writer wants you and I to follow a lone deserter as he stumbles away from the battle on foot. It's Sisera. The military strong man who'd made Israel quake in their boots for 20 years. But now his chariot's stuck in the mud and he's running. He's looking for a safe haven. Somewhere where he can hide for a few hours or a few days. And he thinks he knows just the right place. Verse 17 says, he fled to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Why? Because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Isn't that lucky? 
Heber is an ally. And he just so happens to have moved into the area recently. But it is not Heber who meets Sisera. It's Heber's wife, Jael. And notice how in verse 18, it is Jael who takes the initiative. Before Sisera can even ask her for shelter, she goes out to meet him and she calls him into her tent. And she soothes him. Don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. In verse 19, he asks her for water, but again, she's the one in charge. Instead of water, she gives him a bottle of milk and she tucks him into bed. Just like a mother sending a little baby off to sleep. And he does sleep. He's emotionally and physically spent from the day's efforts. And as Sisera sleeps like a baby on the floor, this gentle lady picks up a tent peg and she kneels him to the floor with it. Right through his head. What are we to make of this? It's shocking. Well, this is the second chapter in a row where the climax of the story has been a blow of extreme and decisive violence. If you remember in chapter 4, it was Ehud driving his dagger into Eglon's stomach. Equally shocking. Here, it's Jael with a tent peg to Sisera's temple. That's the similarity. The difference is that Ehud was a trained assassin. And he was an Israelite. Jael is a housewife. And she might be trained in pitching tents, okay. Historians tell us the ladies did that job in that culture. So, okay, she knows how to hit a peg with incredible force. But she was no warrior. And she wasn't even an Israelite either. In other words... Jael is the most unlikely candidate to deal with Israel's great enemy. She was not included in Barak's battle plan, you can be sure of that. In no way was she factored in as a military asset. And that is exactly why God used her. Of course, you and I might wonder, well, what was her motivation personally? Why did she do this? I think the answer has to be she is choosing to side with Israel and Israel's God. Just like Rahab did in Jericho years before this when she helped the Israelite spies. Jael's husband has chosen to ally himself with Jabin and the Canaanites. But Jael goes the other way. And she shows her allegiance to Israel in the most decisive way. There's not really any going back after you've done what she did. I think we can safely say that's what Jael was thinking. But as far as God himself is concerned, I believe he is intentionally using the most unlikely candidate available to deal with Israel's enemy. Back in verse 7, Deborah had told Barak, because your confidence is misplaced, Barak, 
Because it was in me instead of the Lord, the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. That woman is Jael, someone we couldn't have expected. Someone we'd never even heard of till she stepped out of her tent to meet Sisera. And the lesson to be learned is that the Lord is worthy of our confidence. He can not only save, he can save in ways we would never have imagined possible. We noticed earlier, Barak is commended in the New Testament as a man of faith. Well, here is how he learned the lesson of faith. Verse 22 tells us, Jael has just finished nailing Caesar's head to the rug when Barak arrives, looking for the great enemy. And Jael is happy to show him. The end of the chapter tells us, Jael's hammer blow had wide repercussions. It led to Israel subduing and eventually destroying Jabin, their oppressor. But the focus of this chapter is not on Jael, scary woman that she was. Nor is the focus on Deborah, amazing woman that she was. The focus is on Barak and the lesson God wanted to teach him. The lesson that the Lord is worthy of our confidence. Our confidence is misplaced if we place it anywhere else. Only the Lord can fight for you and me in ways that are immeasurably more than we ask or imagine. He did it here with Jael and her hammer. When this story started, who could have predicted it would end like this? That deliverance would come this way. And the New Testament asks you and me to consider Who could have predicted that the Lord would save us eternally by sending his own son to take human form and allow himself to be nailed to a cross? In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says, the world in its wisdom considers that message of the cross to be just foolishness. How could victory come that way? Give us a strong man to trust in. Give us an obvious hero to believe in. We'll put our confidence in somebody like that. Somebody in a chariot. But how can we put our hope in a man who's tortured and killed like this? Offering no resistance. And yet, Paul says... When we look at the cross, what we are seeing on the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because he works above and beyond our wisdom to save us through that crucified Savior. So whether we're talking about the very minor situation really of Jael with her hammer or whether we're talking about the supreme situation of Jesus on the cross, the Lord has shown himself worthy of our confidence. Every time, in every situation, he brings victory to those who trust in him. 
He is the true anchor for your life. He is the one who will not, who cannot let you down. And that's true even when you and I cannot see the sense of what's going on. It's true even when the situation gets worse instead of getting better. It's true even when there seems to be no way out at all. When you and I put our confidence in Him, He will, in the end, lead us to victory. Let's close by praising Him. And we will do that as the musicians lead us in the song, We Have an Anchor.
Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, the only one who is able, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.